Part 19. It's my birthday. June 17, 1994 was one of the busiest news days in American history. I could have been anywhere in the world that weekend and wound up right where I belonged. Seamus McCaffrey was a walking stereotype of a throwback Irish-American in the 90s, from the brogue to a personality that could charm or fight at the drop of a tweed cap. We met in a hospitality tent at the Phoenix Open Golf Tournament in 1992. I was managing a sponsorship for M&M Mars, and Seamus' clan of Celtic freeloaders had finessed their way into the corporate tent village. Their next objective was to con a tent manager, like me, into letting them stick around for free food and adult beverages. Seamus wasn't shy with his charm as he approached to introduce himself. When he learned my name was Mike, his face lit up. Ah, Michael, a good Irishman, no doubt, he said. About half, I replied. He sensed half would be good enough for his con and smiled. Seamus McCaffrey. He pretended to spit on his hand and offered it to shake. The spit shake was once common, but little known today. It replaced the ritual of cutting one's hand with a knife to share bodily fluids in a solemn oath of bonding. I shook his meaty hand and returned the glint in his eye to let him know managers of corporate hospitality venues are no strangers to roving opportunists. My silent hint of doubt was no deterrent to a man from Northern Ireland where the troubles between Catholics and Protestants had been raging for hundreds of years. To Seamus, quid pro quo was a way of life, and he shamelessly declared that I was now a friend to the owner of Seamus McCaffrey's Irish Pub in Phoenix, Arizona, and that I and my friends would be treated accordingly. All he asked in return was a wee rest in our tent and one pint for him and his friends who were visiting from the old sod over in County Cork. I told them my mother-in-law's family was from Cork, near Blarney. I emphasized the word Blarney, and that I wasn't aware of a man from that region who could be quenched by a single pint. I, they all smiled and nodded in hopeful agreement. The subdued atmosphere of a tent full of competing grocery buyers needed a shot in the arm. So I instructed the clan that if anyone asked, they were guests of Seamus' food service distributor. He loved a good finagle and sent another grin with his eyes that said, You and I will get along famously. Two years later, he invited me to the Italy versus Ireland World Cup soccer match in New York City. And for about a decade, our group of St. Patrick's Day revelers up in St. Paul would call down to his pub in Phoenix to kick the day off with a serenade of Wild Irish Rose. The World Cup match was to be played on my birthday, June 18, 1994, during a weekend that would become a harmonic convergence of historic sporting occurrences throughout the country. One of those events was the U.S. Open Golf Tournament at Oakmont Country Club near Pittsburgh, 
and a vendor had already invited me to join him for a go-anywhere clubhouse pass and once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be up close as Arnold Palmer played his last competitive round in a major tournament. Oakmont was Palmer's home course, and Arnie's army faithfully followed him for two days, even as his last round had a feel of Thermopylae when he three-putted each of the last five holes he played. The one-day score didn't matter. The adoring crowd gave him an extended standing ovation to applaud more than 40 years of entertainment, excitement, and selfless fundraising. The ever-gracious Mr. Palmer couldn't talk. His tears did the bidding of thank you and farewell. I wasn't there to see it. New York City is perhaps the only place on Earth that could host two professional league championships and the planet's most prominent competition, the FIFA World Cup, at the same time without breaking stride. The city never slept the weekend of June 17, 1994. It didn't have a chance. On Friday, Marc Messier was the de facto Grand Marshal of a ticker tape parade down Broadway after leading the New York Rangers to their first Stanley Cup championship in 40 years. Also that weekend, Patrick Ewing and the New York Knicks were locked in one of the NBA's most epic championship battles with Hakeem Olajuwon and the Houston Rockets. Meanwhile, the nearly identical flags of Italy and Ireland waved and streamed constantly through the streets. The pubs were packed with international visitors and local ethnics who gathered in pregame cheer for their nation or the old country of their ancestors. On the flags and in the pubs, a half-tone of difference between Italian red and Irish orange was the only distinction. Seamus was ecstatic as the Irish upset the favored Italians in a one-nil game that held the overflow Meadowlands crowd in torturous anxiety the entire afternoon. Tensions were later soothed with celebration and commiseration that spilled long into the night. I wasn't there to see it. On paper, Mary Beth and I had glamorous jobs for young people in our 30s. I was doing the sports marketing thing, and attending high-profile events throughout the nation. Mary Beth was in sales with Northwest Airlines and hosting VIP trips to exotic places like Thailand, Korea, Australia, Paris, London, and Amsterdam. She even hosted the Sister City Contingent to Japan for the dedication of Constellation Earth, St. Paul's Monument Gift to Nagasaki's Peace Park. It all sounds glamorous, but our trips were usually marked by 12-hour workdays as we entertained clients, managed logistics, and slept around boxes of gifts and supplies. We rarely got to travel together. On the weekend of June 17, 1994, however, Mary Beth was taking a group to Anchorage, Alaska for an exclusive outdoor concert headlined by Don McLean and I was invited. As the concert's primary sponsor, Northwest employees and guests enjoyed backstage access to meet the performers 
on a beautiful 70-degree day with North America's highest peak, Mount McKinley, Denali today, and a full horizon of snow-capped mountains as a backdrop. I wasn't there to see it. Back home in Minnesota, I had worked my way through a dilemma that was an embarrassment of riches. In addition to the incredible invitations, I had an annual tradition and obligation to uphold. Each year, my fishing buddy, Tony Nelson, and his family hosted the Wayne Nelson Memorial Fishing Tournament on northern Minnesota's Dead Lake to honor their father. The Wayne was held on Father's Day weekend, and Tony and I were the organizers. Anticipation for the three-day event would start to whip up on Thursday evening as teams checked in halfway to the cabin at the roadblock, Jan's Bar in Freeport, Minnesota. The town was made semi-famous by Garrison Keeler as the inspiration for the fictional place Lake Wobegon on National Public Radio's Prairie Home Companion. Our inspiration, Jan's, was just down the street from Keeler's preferred cafe. We'd play golf on Friday and gather around a fire pit for a raucous rules interpretation meeting. We often had guys fishing naked for good luck, twins baseball on the radio, martinis at the point for happy hour, and dubious distinction awards throughout the weekend. In 1992, the northern lights lit up the sky as we returned from golf, and we made our driver, nephew Jared, muscle my four-speed stick, Volkswagen Vanagon, off into a field so we could drag out the coolers and marvel at the infinite canvas of God's cosmic artistry. As great as the other offers were, I couldn't part from the boys. The invitations to New York, Pennsylvania, and Alaska were gratefully declined. Then, in late May, Tony discovered cancer in his lymph nodes, and the tournament was canceled. On June 17, 1994, there was no New York City pub full of Irish and Italians for me. No exclusive country club in Pennsylvania with Arnie's Army. No starry, starry night with my wife in Alaska. And no buffoonery with the boys in northern Minnesota. But hey, it was still my birthday weekend, and I most definitely had a reserved seat at my favorite watering hole, the Little Wagon Restaurant in Minneapolis. The wagon had an eclectic mix of patrons who were a bit more learned than your typical bar regulars. They were writers, editors, and press operators from the Star Tribune newspaper, financial executives, traders from the Minneapolis Grain Exchange, attorneys, cops, and occasional visits by elected officials from City Hall across the street. It wasn't uncommon for a game of bridge to break out, or to engage a Pulitzer-winning columnist in discussion. The best man in our wedding, Mike Chief Widener, felt obligated to make sure I wasn't suffering what-if syndrome, and joined me. He had put together a commemorative video for my bachelor party that interviewed family, buddies, and our treasured coach and mentor, Jack Osberg. 
The VCR tape concluded with one of my favorite movie clips from the outlaw Josie Wales, wherein Josie, Clint Eastwood, eulogizes a friend with a matter-of-fact yet ultimate compliment. This boy was brought up in a time of blood and dying and never questioned a bit of it. He never turned his back on his folks or his kind. I rode with him. I got no complaints. One thing we knew on June 17, 1994, there were plenty of sports on the TV. In addition to the World Cup, Arnie's goodbye at Oakmount, the NBA Finals, Ken Griffey Jr. was chasing Babe Ruth's cherished single-season home run record without performance-enhancing drugs. We didn't see any of them. We couldn't. They weren't there to be seen. Bob Costas cut away from what should have been his quintessential day of sports broadcasting to call the play-by-play of a white Ford Bronco on an L.A. freeway being followed by a dozen helicopters and half the state troopers in California. One of the nation's most successful sports and screen crossover celebrities, O.J. Simpson, was in the white truck and exhibiting a curious reaction to his wife's and Ronald Goldman's tragic murders. The television coverage was on every channel and cast a bizarre spell of paralysis over all of us that night. As the entire nation watched the painstakingly uneventful episode unfold, our obsession with celebrity had come of age, and the O.J. preoccupation overwhelmed every media outlet for many months to come. A bar full of people who were more learned than most just stared and mumbled at the television screens for hours. Chief was tired of the bizarre and monotonous scenario and took a teasing shot at me. Hey, happy birthday, he said. How's that Alaska thing going for you? I would have picked New York, I replied. Whatever, he concluded. Seamus and I talked a month later. He regaled me with what I had missed in New York, and I told him he didn't know the half of it. His response was a mix of compassion and laughter. Ah, Michael, he said. The good Lord loves you. Hasn't he given you a brilliant story? A recurring line by Clint Eastwood playing Josie Wales came to mind. Depending on the inflection... It could mean anything from absolutely to what next. I mused the line to myself. Reckon so.